Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true saints of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do it not. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a new robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Last week we considered the judgment of the great harlot, Babylon the Great, this personification of the world as it is in rebellion against the one true God. And it was not merely what happened, it was a description of that. It was not merely what happened, but also of responses we spoke of. We saw that those who were aligned with the world, those in the world, those belonging to her, mourned her loss, mourned her destruction, mourned what they lost in it. But we did not actually hear the response of God's people. We heard something about it, but we didn't actually hear the response. Rather, what we heard were instructions with regard to the way that God's people should respond. Do you remember what those instructions were? It was in Revelation 18.20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And you holy angels and prophets. The instruction was to rejoice over the destruction, the judgment of Babylon. And we do. And God's people will do this. And we must remember as we think of Revelation, when we speak of the great heavenly host, when we speak of those people that are gathered in heaven, all the redeemed of the earth who are, are worshiping God, that includes us. That includes those, some of those who are before us this very morning, those who are redeemed, the elect people of God, you are looking into the future and you're seeing what you're going to do someday when this world is judged. 
And what is going to happen on that day is you're going to rejoice. And you're going to say, Alleluia. And we have in this first part of chapter 19, four times repeated the word, Alleluia. That's, of course, the same as Hallelujah, and better translated, in fact, as Hallelujah. We probably know as we come somewhat closer to this season of, of the year, we come to the time where we hear Handel's Messiah. And most of us know the famous Hallelujah chorus. Well, this is, in fact, where it comes from. It's from this chapter, Revelation 19, Hallelujah. The word occurs only here in the New Testament that occurs in the, the Psalms. What does it mean? Well, it, it, we could just look at any one of these psalms that contains it. But the very last psalm in the Bible, Psalm 150, says this. It starts with the words, praise the Lord, in Hebrew, hallelujah. And it closes in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, the repeated refrain. In fact, the last five psalms all have this beginning and end of praise the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah means praise Yahweh, praise the Lord. Now, more importantly, though, as to what more beyond than just what the word means, I think we all have some notion of it, is, is why. We, what sticks in our minds is the word hallelujah, and we remember that from the, the hallelujah course, but we may not think about the other words of the text that explain why it's happening. What is bringing about this outburst? What is provoking all of heaven in this great outcry of praise? Because, ladies and gentlemen, worship does not just happen. Yes, we can put a book before your, your face and you can read these words and you can maybe even sing them, but that does not necessarily mean that this is true worship. Worship is provoked. What is provoked by? It is provoked by a true view of the real living God. It is by looking at his holiness. It is by seeing his glorious attributes and his works. And that is what provokes God's people to worship. And what is specifically provoked God's people to worship in this case is his final act and the great work of redemption. And that final act is the work of judging the world. Now, in this work of judging the world, they see God as he is. They see him in all of his majestic glory, and they cannot but worship him. They cannot but bow down and give him thanks and praise for what he is and what he has done. Now, I would ask this, this morning the question, is there any way for us to join in this? We know that one day, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will, because you've already seen yourself described in this chapter. You know that you're going to be shouting hallelujah at the edge of your ability to do so. But is there any way now in our hearts that we can join in well, perhaps we can consider the things that they themselves cite as the reason for why they're doing this. You know, that's what so much of Revelation is for. We don't need to actually wait until it actually happens. These events happen at some point in the future in order and see them with our eyes. It's all recorded. It's all set down for us, this book, in this book, so that we might see it now. We might join in praising God now for these things. We have these things recorded perfectly clearly for us. We don't need to wait. May God give us strength to see these things and join with them in worshiping God. Well, these three particular headings, as we ask the question, why the Hallelujah Chorus? That's the title. Why the Hallelujah Chorus? And the answer is in these three ways. Because one... Salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to our God. Those four things. Salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to our God. Second, because the smoke of hell rises up forever. And third, because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That is why they sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Those are the reasons cited in inspired scripture. That is the reasons they give for why they sing in recognition of these things, these aspects of God's glorious character and works. May God show us them this morning. 
Well, first, because salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to our God, as we have in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Now, something very similar, not quite exactly the same, but very similar was said back in chapter 4, verse 11. It says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So the rationale back then for this display of attributes, they saw God's attributes, these particular ones, three out of four actually, of these particular attributes in God's work of creation. And we know that in all these great epochs of history, in creation and in all the phases of redemption from things like the flood and the, the covenants and particularly and, uh, the exodus and certainly the, the cross, but also in the judgment to come, God's attributes in these ways are displayed for us. Back then, it was creation. That's the action. And now the rationale for these things in our chapter, the reason given in verse 2, is for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged a great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's the reason. Before his creation, and now it is because of judgment. And in this judgment of the world, in this judgment of the great harlot, these great attributes of God are displayed. To full effect. Now, going in reverse order, the way from the way they have them, let's let's see how that might be in each case. First of all, power. How is God's power displayed for us in the final judgment of the world? Well, because at times, even in the book of Revelation itself, you would might get the the impression that there's no power on earth that could do anything against Babylon, against this world power. We see it like this. Leviathan crushing everything under the power of, of Satan who is so sadly so crafty and so powerful in various ways and the whole world is under his control and his minions and it seems moreover like a, a vast black hole not merely just crushing everything in its path but appropriating it taking it on board making it assimilating these things. And we've heard that that's one of the scariest aspects of Satan and his warfare against the the church is not merely the outward opposition, but he's trying to take us over. There's not a single moment all around the world where all the things that have established themselves as being Christian are not under in danger of being appropriated by Satan and by false gospels and false theology that take them over like a virus and begin to replicate in the image of the thing that gave them the virus. And you look and how, you see how this, this, uh, this great temptation works. So there's opposition, there's temptation, there's false doctrine. And everywhere, Satan seems to be prevailing, even in Revelation itself. Because it does not paint for us rose-tinted spectacles view of the world. It shows us the truth and it shows us that things are really bad. And looking at these things and even just looking out our windows, looking out of uh, the the world, uh, through the media, or any of these things, we'd say, we don't have a chance. But the fact then, and notwithstanding all this, all the odds, and the odds are stacked very high, that God could in a moment of time, the very moment of his choosing, just simply wipe it all away, bring it into utter destruction, call it to account like a, a naughty school child, That is awe-striking. That tells us the great power of our God. The words of the merchants in Revelation 18.7, For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. This is amazing that in one hour such a thing could happen. Or in a few verses later in that chapter, verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it to the sea, saying, Thus with great violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and not be found anymore. That's the picture that we have. Though this world is so powerful, though it is so great and seemingly nothing can stand against it, God says it's like a millstone I'm throwing into the sea, destroyed just like that, done. To do that requires power beyond imagination. And that is the power that God wants us to see. His power in bringing about this sudden and complete utter destruction of the world. 
God has already demonstrated that power in creation. We need to understand how that is. He brought the universe into existence, not gradually and not imperfect, imperfectly, but suddenly and completely by his mere word. That's what this demonstrated his power. The great demonstration of his power was in this sudden and complete and utter creation of all things, simply by his word. Drawing a distinction between himself and all created powers that cannot do such things. And God will demonstrate his power again in the utter, complete, and sudden destruction of this world. He will not need thousands of years to accomplish that, or millions of years. He will do it suddenly. And the job will not be an incomplete one. It will be complete and utter and spectacular. And when we see it, there's one thing I can be sure of, one thing that I can tell you without the slightest doubt, we will say hallelujah. Power belongs to our God. There's power and there's honor. We see something of the concept of honor. What do we mean when we say honor? We live in a time where honor means almost nothing. But what does it mean? We see the concept back in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. You recall exactly what that meant in his case. He who lifted himself up in pride, he who acted as if the Lord didn't even exist, or if he did exist, he certainly didn't matter. He who claimed all the glory for himself, God put him down. God brought him low. And in the end, he says, I'm going to honor this God. I know his power, and I'm going to honor him. But even more so, an even greater example, that certainly happens in the Exodus, and particularly God's dealings with Pharaoh. Do you recall Pharaoh's initial reply to Moses? You know, Moses, this, this great episode of redemption. The initial response of Moses, back at the very beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Do you understand? This is not a matter of simple ignorance. It's not a matter of, I, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of the Lord. Please tell me more now. This was an intentional slight. He had dishonored the Lord in his willful disbelief and disobedience. And the great question of Exodus was whether this was going to stand. Is the Lord going to let that stand? Or is he going to regain his honor with regard to Pharaoh? Well, I think the answer comes in the words, in the fearsome words of Exodus 14.4. Then I will harden, this is the Lord speaking, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. That they may know that. Then in verse 17, and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them so I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Do you grasp this? Do you grasp the fact that they were allowed to pursue after him, after the army, after the people of of Israel, the army pursuing after the people of Israel? That was not a, a mistake. That was not an accident. That was part of God's plan in order that he might gain honor over them in their destruction, in their judgment. Now, we know that throughout Scripture, Pharaoh is a type for all those who oppose God and enslave people into darkness. Maybe you recall this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees in John eight forty-eight, And the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. You dishonor me. And the great question is whether that dishonor is going to be allowed to stand for all time. Or whether those people are going to be brought to account. Whether Christ is going to regain his honor. Whether he is, his honor is going to be 
we gained and displayed. And one wonders whether it is possible then that the Lord has declared, as he did to Pharaoh, he declares to this whole unbelieving world in much the same way, that he will harden their hearts so that they will oppose Christ and persecute his people. And that indeed all the persecutions of this church, they're not accidental. They're not something that happens outside of God's will at all. But he's bringing them about in order that he may have honor over them when they are brought into judgment. That the display will be all the greater of God's great honor when they are brought to judgment. You know, it says, by the way, it says as much in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 7, Revelation 17, 7, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. You say, this persecution from beginning to end, it's not a mistake, it's not an accident? No. No, he's put it in their, their hearts and their minds to fulfill that in order that he might have honor over the beast, over the false prophet, over Babylon, over Satan. Well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I want to tell you that the day is coming when God himself will fully reclaim his honor at the judgment of this world. And ladies and gentlemen, when we see that, we are going to say, Alleluia. Alleluia. Honor belongs to our God. Honor. And there's also going to be glory. And this, in some way, doesn't require as much time because it is the fullness, it is the, um, the larger category under which all these things are conveyed. The glory of God. Because all of God's dealings in creation and redemption, all of them are to bring him glory. We must remember that. It's not a, the calculus does not work. It's not predicated on human things. It's not, first of all, predicated on human free will. But it's not, equally, it's not predicated on, on human happiness. Both of those things are mistakes. You know, we have those who would, who would defend, uh, supposedly defend God by saying, well, the only way, human evil is the only way that he can actually, uh, you see, allow us to exercise our free will. And, and I find that a bit bizarre, um, that God would demonstrate his great sovereignty and, and power and so forth by ceding that, all those things to someone else other than himself. doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's not also predicated on human happiness. That's not what, what God's word says. It is not the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. That is not the calculus that we are, we are working on here. It is rather the maximum display of God's glory. That is the thing. In all of creation, in all of redemption, the only calculus, the only, uh, only algebra problem is what is going to bring the maximum display of God's attributes. And that's what his glory is. He's simply displaying what he is. Because he is so glorious and wonderful, when he shows us himself, then he is glorified. And so all of these things bring God glory. And you know, God's glory is not more from his mercy than in his justice. You see, both of these things are true of him. And we cannot say that God is glorified more in his mercy than in his justice. That's, I don't find that in scripture. You know, in fact, in some ways, the display of his mercy and grace is almost predicated on a more overwhelming display of his justice. Because you see, on, on earth, it is only the weak kings and the weak magistrates who are simply expected to give mercy in the great majority of cases, Right? You find a king, you extol his mercy and his grace when you know that in the great majority of cases he is just and exacts the fullness of justice on each case. And then, out of his goodness and his love, perhaps, he gives someone mercy and you say, what a merciful God. Well, that, that's what we're looking at when we look at God. We look at this king who is known for his justice. And in some cases... In ways that are beyond imagination, he gives us mercy and grace. That's the nature of true mercy and true grace. 
and that it is in some sense exceptional. It could not be the thing that always prevails. It would not be grace. It would not be mercy. So glory is seen in all these things. Glory is seen in creation. Glory is seen in the cross. And glory is seen in judgment. And finally, in this first point, we see that salvation is also true. Now, that's the one attribute that was actually added to the list. We said that there was a whole... The list of the, those three things in Revelation 4.11, but the one thing that was added is salvation. And you can see why that would be. Because that, that list back in Revelation 4.11 had to do with what is shown in creation. And there's something missing, isn't there? The thing that's missing in creation is salvation. Salvation was not displayed in creation because we were unfallen. There is nothing to be saved from. There is no sin. There is no enemy. Rather, a perfect creation. No salvation seen in it. And you say that's a glorious creation, it's a wonderful creation, but it does not display something important of God's character, and that is the fact that he is the Savior. And if we had not seen, indeed, if we had not fallen into sin, yes, of our own free will, but if that had not happened, we would not see this glorious aspect of God's creation, there's God's glory of he being the Savior of sinners such as ourselves. And that's the thing that is added. Now, of course, supremely, the work of salvation was in the cross, in this great act of salvation. But I want us to see that both in the cross and also in the final judgment, these things are both acts of salvation and also judgment. The cross was primarily, at least from what we could see, primarily an act of salvation, but it is also of judgment. You know that the Gospels say that. Now, Satan is judged. Judgment has come. Why? Because judgment was done on the cross. But that final outworking of judgment that happened there that comes finally in the destruction of the world. And we know, we think of that the end of the world certainly as an act of judgment, but it is also an act of salvation. Because in the very destruction of these things, of this seductive power, we see it even in, in this chapter, wasn't it? And we're explaining why it was that he's, how wonderful and true and righteous are his judgments in verse 2. Because he has judged a great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And this force that was corrupting the earth, that was bringing God's people to, to commit spiritual fornication. And if that didn't work, to persecute her. Then in her destruction is our salvation. Because while it's still around... We're not, in a final sense, saved. Yes, we have, we have justification before God, and that is the central thing. But ladies and gentlemen, I don't need to remind you that daily we face the reality of being endangered by this world in various ways. It cries out to us in the ways that are most seductive, in the ways that are known to work, in various ways in all of us, and the false teachings that continue to endanger the church even to this moment. We're not really and finally saved until this world is finally and completely brought to an end. And so there is salvation demonstrated in God's judgment of the world. Now this salvation, the fact that salvation belongs to our God, is a great story of revelation. You remember back in chapter 7, verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, and we must not forget this. If God's mercy and his grace is in some way exceptional, if in some sense the Bible speaks that few are saved, that few is still a huge, huge number. A great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is the aspect, the glorious aspect of God's character that we as sinners primarily relate to him as. Yes, he's our creator. Yes, he is all-powerful and all the rest of these things. But the point of contact with a sinner is the fact that he is the savior of sinners. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And this, in some sense, is the most amazing thing of all. 
We can understand, anyone, even pagans outside, can understand that God would be powerful. Some can understand that He'd be honorable and that He'd be glorious. But the fact that He'd be the Savior of sinners, that's an amazing thing. And truly, when we look at this, when we look at Him as a Savior of sinners like ourselves, we say, Alleluia. Salvation belongs to our Lord. Well, that was our first point. The second, the reason why they say Alleluia in heaven is because the smoke of hell rises up forever. That's what we have in verse 3. And again, they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And if in our first point we are looking at these attributes of God as demonstrated specifically in the initial judgment of Babylon in that moment of bringing it to justice here we are looking at the ongoing nature of that judgment in eternity it goes on to say and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying Amen, Alleluia a voice from the throne saying praise our God all you servants and those who fear him both small and great and all these things are related to the idea that the smoke rises forever And if you think of nothing more from this point, I want you to think of this. Eternal hell is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith that ought to be explained away. Eternal hell is something that provokes praise to our God. It is something that provokes the saints in heaven and again you and I to say alleluia. Not just once. But we have this notion of repeated giving thanks and praise and calling out that we all might give praise because the smoke rises forever. Now, let's think about how this works. First of all, I'd say where there's smoke, there is fire, and that fire is of God. The smoke doesn't come of its own. The smoke comes because there is a fire, and the fire is God himself. Exodus twenty four seventeen. God reveals himself. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Of course, he showed himself that way in the burning bush. He's a consuming fire. And in Deuteronomy four twenty four, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Repeated for us in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Now, what does this, the fact that God is a fire do? Well, he's holy, of course. He burns with perfect holiness. And when he comes into contact with sin, then this consuming fire burns, as it says in Deuteronomy 32:22, "For a fire is kindled by my anger and shall burn to lowest hell." That is the reality of, of sin in the contact with the holy God. So the source of this smoke is God's own fire, his wrath against sin. And what we're particularly looking at here is the fact that that torment in hell is eternal. The smoke rises forever. We have that very clearly set for us in things like Isaiah 66, 24. They shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And it goes on forever. Or in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, if anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And listen, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And we know that this picture of Babylon, this picture of the beast, is not just certain people who decide to be beast worshippers. These are all the people in the world whose names are not written in the book of life, who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only two groups of people, those who worship Christ and those who worship the beast. And the latter category brought to hell eternally. Now, why is that? Why is that just? Well, again, if we consider God as someone who is like us and who answers to the very same responsibilities and, and sort of situation in life that we ourselves as human beings, then it doesn't make much sense. 
Because if some person in this earth kills some other person, then we say that all the worst that can be done to them is the very same thing to be done. And, and so the time component is only equivalent in that way, and it only happens in this, this time frame. But that, of course, is not the case. That, that's not the full reality of sin. The worst thing about sin is not that we sin against one another, and therefore that our, our payment should be equal in sort of human terms. The worst thing about sin by far, by incomparably greater comparison, is that it's a sin against an infinite God. And what we've learned, I hope, is that this God, his glory and his honor and his station is infinitely higher than ours. He is the creator, we're the creature. And therefore, when we sin against him, there is this, as Edwards would say, an infinite component. The infinite component is the fact that we as human beings, finite human beings, have taken it in hand to sin against this infinite God to whom we are infinitely obliged to obey. And therefore, there is an infinite component to the punishment that comes with it. It would not do for us to be punished for a few moments, for a few years, because that would not deal adequately with the nature of this infinite sin against an infinite God. We as finite beings, therefore, the only thing for it is that we suffer eternally in hell. That is the just and right payment. And we know this from other ways, of course. We say that God is just. And we believe that. And the whole Bible from beginning to end says he's just. And in this very chapter we have before us, just and true, righteous. Same word, righteous, just, and true are his judgments. And one part of the justice of that, as the justice of that judgment is being explained to us, is the fact that the smoke of their torment rises forever. He is just in doing that. He does not need to explain himself to us. But the reality is the only reason that you and I do not immediately and instinctively see that as just is because we simply have no idea of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. We think that God is altogether such a one as we are ourselves. And therefore, we don't think it's a big deal to sin against him. That's why we do it. And we don't think, therefore, that sin is such a big thing, and and therefore we don't imagine, therefore, that it would be entirely inadequate and unjust where sinners only repaid with a certain amount of time. No. Just and true are your judgments, particularly including the fact that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And so in verse 3, hallelujah, why? Her smoke rises up forever and ever. You know, there will not be a single moment in eternity when we are not completely conscious that God is a God of justice. It will never slip from our mind. Sometimes, you know, the problem with going on holiday for a long time is because we start to, it wears off. First couple of days, it's been so wonderful to be in some other place. But we start to get used to it. And the effect wears off. But I can tell you that that will never happen in heaven. That our joy of being in heaven will never wear off because there will never be a moment where we do not have in one way or another before us the reality that we belong in hell. And right now, God is displaying his justice eternally, throughout all of eternity, displaying his perfect justice and his wrath against those in hell. And we will never, ever, ever take for granted the reality of being saved from that which we ourselves so richly deserved. And when we see that, when we contemplate the smoke of her torment ascending forever and ever for all eternity, what are we going to say? What a shame. No, I can tell you what we're going to say. Alleluia. Alleluia. We will praise God. Thirdly and finally, why are we saying Alleluia? Why the Alleluia chorus? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It says in verse 6, And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, and there's the sound of many waters, and the sound of mighty thunder, and saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Lord God omnipotent 
reigns. In every battle, that's the question, isn't it? Whether we're talking about the war of the roses or, or anything really, the question is who reigns, who rules, who is able to exercise authority in this situation. And the warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has been about sovereignty. Who really reigns? Is it God or is it the creatures in their rebellion against God? And what we're going to find out in the end is that God reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. And his reign will be absolute without the slightest limitation. Now, you see, here on earth we have one of two situations happens very often. Sometimes we have good uh, men uh, who are in situation, who reign, but in a very sort of imperfect and limited sense. And we wish they, in fact, had more power to exercise their goodness and to do good things. But on the other hand, we very often have bad men who are dictators who have unlimited power. And we wish that someone would restrict and rein in their power. Those things are necessary. Those things happen because of human sin. We put in these various stays. We put in these various limitations because we couldn't stand to have one of a fellow human being, a fellow sinner, with absolute unlimited authority on this earth. And in fact, God, in his institution, makes sure that in various ways that doesn't happen, that there are limitations. But ladies and gentlemen, we should not want there to be any limitation in God's reign. Because God is a good God, a perfectly good God, of which there is no sin whatsoever. And we should want his reign to be absolutely perfect without any limitation at all. And I want to tell you that that is the nature of God's reign. That is true. That God will reign and God does reign in absolute perfect sovereignty. His sovereignty is not like the sovereignty of this nation that is in various ways become subject to a greater sovereignty of the EU. It is not like the sovereignty of anyone on earth who can always be held in check by some other power. His sovereignty is utterly complete. And no one can call him to say, what are you doing? He reigns, of course, generally. We see this in, uh, in terms of his power over men in Psalm 2.1. Why do the nations range and rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And what does he declare? What does he say? He says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I have set him on my hill. And though the world rages against him, he will reign. And that is what we find in this great day of judgment. He came in humility, didn't he? Christ came in humility. And he submitted even to death because he loved us so much. In order that he might die for our sins. But when he comes again, he will show himself as a sovereign king over all the earth. He reigns generally and he reigns particularly over the destiny of man. He's not like the God of the Socinians or like the open theist who say that God always limits his authority so that he doesn't possibly transgress human free will because you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want a God who could contravene and contradict our free will, God forbid. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the God of the Bible. That's some idol that has been manufactured by those who hate the real God. No, the real God is not like that. He's not even like the God of the Arminians. And I remember, and it's sadly sometimes a refrain of Arminian preachers to say that Calvinists make God out to be a monster. What do they say that we make him out to be a monster when we declare that he's, he's sovereign over the destiny of men? They say that because they've decided already that the worst thing could be that God would act independently of our own human decision. And you know what that means? Is that he isn't sovereign. That he doesn't reign. That there are these limitations in place like a constitutional monarchy in which there are many things. There are some things that God can do. He can, he can come to opening ceremonies of things. And he can be a ceremonial God 
And he can be over the sparrows and over the hairs of our head, maybe. But the one thing that really matters over whether we go to, to, to heaven or to hell, that's the one thing that God doesn't have power over. It's not true. No, our, the real God is described for us in Romans 9.15, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, remember Pharaoh, here it is again. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. That's the real God. He reigns. There's no limitation on his power, his authority, his determinations at all. He reigns. Alleluia. Our God reigns. How do we apply these things? Well, there's one great application. There are many, but there's one great application. The great and ultimate practical application of this chapter and of all of Revelation and of the whole Bible, what everything is about, all of theology, all of history, all the universe, what is it for? To bring God glory and to bring us to worship this one true and living God. God is going to be glorified. Our work, our right response is to worship him. All of this is leading. And we see that this this action of bringing the world into judgment has brought heaven, the inhabitants of heaven, into a place where they worship the one true and living God. They recognize him for who he really is and worship. That's what this sermon is about, to get you to worship. You know, when I think about those rapturous, spontaneous, uncontrollable uh, cries and cheers in in heaven of alleluia, I think, have I ever heard anything like that on earth? And, And I have, but sadly it's not been in church. It's been at sporting events where people who deeply care about their sporting teams, where that, that team has had victory over the enemy. And there are these great emotive cries. And I haven't heard that yet in church. I'd like to. And you know, I want you to like that. I want you to desire that. I want you to greatly desire that. I want you to understand if that hasn't happened, it's because a failure has happened at church. Either I have failed to show you this God, or you have failed to prepare your hearts, or to to want to see him in, in various ways. And that our worship, therefore, is, to some extent, a failure. We've not seen it. We just haven't seen what we need to see. And therefore, we ought to pray for it. We ought to yearn for it. And one thing, though, I want us to understand. If it hasn't happened, you, just, you understand that you were robbed, okay? We can confess that we didn't prepare as we should have. But let us not say it's because of God. Let us not say that that's the way church ought to be. That that's the way the Christian faith is. Please do not think that the true worship of the living God has anything to do with half-hearted, mumbled singing. Don't ascribe that to him. Say that we failed. And pray for better next time. Secondly, I would say to bow the knee. Bow the knee because it's going to happen. And no doubt there are those among us who have not yet done that, have not yet put their faith in Christ. And at moments like these, when we see God how, as he truly is, when we understand that the smoke of their torment is going to rise forever and ever, our compassion for you could not be any greater. Our compassion and desire to see you come to faith is enormous. And how we pray that God would enable you to do it, because at the end, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. But it needs to happen now, in this lifetime, for you to be among those who are shouting Alleluia in heaven, and not among those for whom it is said their smoke ascends forever and ever in hell.
We need to bow the knee to this great God who, dis- who declares himself so powerful, but also to be the Savior of sinners. Salvation belongs to our God. And we ought to embrace it. Thirdly and finally, we need to rejoice and take heart because our God reigns. He is our God and he really does sit upon the throne. That's not subjective, wishful thinking. That is reality. It's more than we dared to hope that our God reigns. You know, when we're speaking of the Hallelujah Chorus, it reminds me of something else that happens around this season. We think of, the, of what was said to Mary. The angel comes, Angel Gabriel, and says, Do not be afraid, Mary. Why? Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then he describes what this son is going to accomplish. He says, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Do not be afraid. Our God reigns. He will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. So take heart. Our God reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the things contained in this chapter are greater than any sermon could possibly contain convey. And Lord, sadly, we recognize that we have not been able to take in a half of it. And we have not been brought to the place of spontaneous and loud and joyful cries of Alleluia. But Lord, even as much as we have seen, Lord, we see that you are glorious. Lord, we see that you are powerful and you're the Savior of sinners. We pray, therefore, that you'd help us to bow the knee some for the first time to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, that we bow in true and real worship. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would work mightily upon us, that we might receive and appropriate these things. And, Lord, we'd not fear. But rather, Lord, we'd be joyful knowing that you reign now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.